0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene. Normally, this is the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. But once a month, we do something a little different. This is our bonus episode for November... On a horror adjacent film. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Sarah.
0: Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, how are you doing?
1: I am excited for this movie. I was not excited about the research because there's a reason we don't do true crime. <laughs> <laughs> how are you?
0: I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah. I will say this one of the perks of the horror adjacent bonus episode system is that we have polls on our Patreon for our patrons to vote for what movie will be the bonus episode movie. And that means that we're always sure to get something really interesting, you know, something iconic, something well-recognized, you know, a real winner every time. The downside of that system is it means that every horror-adjacent bonus episode is a lot of work.
1: <laughs> what are we watching today?
0: Today, we are watching M. From 1931, directed by Fritz Lang.
1: To make sure everyone's clear, this isn't like a biopic of the character M from James Bond.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely predates that by a wide margin. People tend to try to categorize this movie and it ends up getting categorized into like a lot of different genres Mm -hmm. because people seem to have a lot of difficulty picking a genre that this belongs into. And I think... Over the course of our discussion of this movie, the reason for that will become clear.
1: I've seen this movie slotted in as horror, as mystery, film noir, um, and that was kind of like the theme for the poll Mm -hmm. for people to vote on. November. Yeah, exactly. Um, But ultimately, I don't know if I would even call this film noir. No. Yeah.
0: No, this is proto-noir. Mm -hmm. But it definitely exists outside of the normal definitions Mm -hmm. of like what makes a film noir. I would say that this is a thriller.
1: Well, definitely. But that's a very broad genre. That's like saying like something's a drama.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. But when this movie came out, um, there were certain markets where Mm -hmm. it was advertised as horror. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think it's horror. It doesn't really... No. It's, it's off doing too many other things over the course of its running time.
1: So if it's not clear by now, we have seen the movie before. Yes. Um, My first time watching it was with you. Yes. Uh, You showed it to me during like an early time in our dating history. Um, okay, yeah. When was your first time seeing this movie? Um, I think
0: I became aware of this movie in my... Probably around the time I was 11... Really, 11 or 12.
1: I I guess you were like a big Metropolis fan from a young age.
0: Yeah I got into Metropolis which is a film from the same director Mm -hmm. Fritz Lang.
1: And is of course a sequel to M because M for Metropolis. (laughs) No. That is false. False information. (laughs)
0: Disinformation. Bad Sarah. Not allowed on Facebook. (laughs) And that sort of led me to you know finding out more about other movies he'd made and then when i was in sixth grade i had a school principal who was like really into like film noir and stuff like that and that was around the same age that i first saw the trial uh by orson wells which i saw <laughs> that many... is
1: shocking <laughs> to, for someone that young to watch the trial and enjoy it
0: yeah that was just me as an 11 year old um So I I sought out this movie and I probably would have watched it around the time I was maybe 13 or 14, uh, a few years after like hearing about it. Yeah. So despite this director being, you know, a big name in German silent cinema in the 1920s during the era of German expressionism, uh, we haven't really talked about him all that much on the show because he never really directed any horror movies. Mm -hmm. But we've mentioned his name already. It's Fritz Lang. And he was born Friedrich Christian Anton Lang on December 5th, 1890 in Vienna to architect Anton Lang and his wife, Paula. Anton was Catholic and Paula was Jewish, but had converted to Catholicism when she got married. Fritz Lang was raised Catholic, and while he would later identify as an atheist, he believed that religion was important for, like, ethical teachings as, like, a foundation. He studied civil engineering and art at the Technical University of Vienna, but left Vienna in 1910 to travel the world. He returned to Vienna when World War I began and volunteered for service with the Austrian army, fighting in Russia and Romania. He was wounded four times over the course of his service, including loss of sight in his right eye.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so
0: he wore a um, eye patch for the rest of his life.
1: Oh, dang.
0: While recovering from his wounds and also from shell shock, uh, he began to come up with ideas for movies and, like, write scenarios and treatments. And after the end of the war, he got a job at Decla Films as a writer. In 1919, he married Lisa Rosenthal, a young Jewish woman, and he directed his first feature film, Halblut, uh, or Half-Blood, which is now Lost. By 1920, he had directed four more films, including the two-part film Die Spinnen, uh, The Spiders, and he also had developed a style that combined expressionist-style visuals, with popular genre stories in order to produce films that were both critically and commercially successful. Also in 1920, Lang met writer Thea von Harbaugh and he began a love affair with her. Thea von Harbaugh was born in 1888 to a family of minor nobles in Bavaria. She was educated by private tutors, knew several languages, could play several instruments, and had her first short stories and poems published at age 13. Because privilege. yes. She sought out a career as an actress, debuting in 1906 and beginning a love affair with actor Rudolf Klein-Roga, whom she married during World War I. During this period, her writing shifted to novels uh, with epic stories and strong nationalistic themes. When one of her works was adapted to film, von Harbaugh changed her focus and began writing for film directly. Her interaction with Lang began when he was assigned to assist her in writing an adaptation of her novel Das Indische Grabmal, or The Indian Tomb, uh, which Lang was assigned to help her with because the two of them shared a fascination with India. As the two began their love affair, she became the regular co-writer of his films. And in 1920, she divorced her husband, Rudolf Klein Rogge, to be with Lang. In 1921, she co-wrote Der Mude Todd, uh, known as Destiny in English, uh, which was Lang's next feature film an expressionist fantasy romance based on Indian folklore that proved to be a highly influential film and was critically acclaimed everywhere except in Germany, where it was criticized for not being German enough. Then, one day, Lisa came home to find Fritz and Thea making out on the couch. Shortly thereafter, Lisa was dead in the bathtub from a shot to the chest fired by Lang's revolver, which he had kept from the war. Studio executive Eric Palmer arrived before the police did. And when the police arrived, Lang and von Harbaugh swore that Rosenthal had shot herself over, um, you know, being upset about finding her husband with another woman. Lang, von Harbaugh, and Palmer were charged with obstruction of justice, but that charge was later dropped and the police ruled the death a suicide
1: oh my god i had no idea about this
0: it's not a very well-known fact about lang um he never talked about it ever and uh von harbaugh never talked about it ever and the only people who would talk about it were like german like immigrants who knew them after they came to the u.s never when he was around yeah. And most biographies of Lang up until I think the 70s or 80s just said that he divorced his first wife. Really this incident didn't really start to come to light until people were doing research in like the 80s through the 2000s.
1: Um so we're pretty sure they killed her, right?
0: No one it no. I I have told okay. you what I just told you is literally what we can be sure of. Okay and
1: you've told me the facts of the case
0: and those are the facts that we have that's it
1: that's it oh my Um, god
0: so it is up to you listener i guess to decide whether lisa rosenthal killed herself which is completely possible whether fritz lang killed her or whether thea von harbaugh killed her this incident coming to light has led to kind of like a critical reappraisal of lang's films not in like a he could have killed someone. So he's actually bad. So don't like his movies guys kind of way more in a, like critics examining his films for themes of like guilt and, um, themes of accusations, Mm -hmm. false accusations, murder motive, um, imagery around guns, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I, I'm sure that there is some element of guilt whether he pulled the trigger or not, mm-hmm. you know, I think there would be guilt there for sure.
0: So Lang and von Harbaugh married in 1922, and that year saw the release of their two part film, Dr. Mabusa, a film about a criminal mastermind played by Rudolf Kleinroga.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, was she on set when her ex husband was there? Yes. Oh, boy.
0: Uh, She also, around this time, began to adapt her screenplays into novels that would then be timed to be published to coincide with the release of the films. Smart. Lang was two years younger than von Harbaugh, and shortly after their marriage, he began to regularly have love affairs with younger women, Um, but the pair presented themselves as a happy couple in public, and their professional collaboration remained strong. Von Harbaugh would later say that they remained married for 11 years because for 10, they were too busy to get divorced. So in 1924, the pair created their Germanic mythic epic, the two-part film Die Nibelungen, uh, which also featured Rudolf klein but not in like a starring role, in like a supporting role. Um, and that film was a huge innovative film for like fantasy special effects on film, like Siegfried fights a dragon. And it's just like a big live action dragon there in a movie from 1924. Their next project would be the science fiction epic Metropolis, which would take three years to make and became the most expensive German film ever made to that point, with its large-scale, innovative special effects. Von Harbaugh's novel version would be published in 1925 due to how long production ended up taking them, and so the film was not released until 1927. It debuted at a length of 158 minutes, and while it was praised for its visuals and scale, it was criticized for its length, its trite story, and naive politics. Uh, Joseph Goebbels was very impressed with Metropolis and the film's social justice message and believed that it was a perfect Nazi film and that Lange would make an ideal Nazi filmmaker.
1: Uh Uh-oh.
0: Lange at the time considered himself apolitical and would later say that the political message of Metropolis came solely from von Harbaugh and that he considered the film's politics to be essentially a fairy tale. Now, she herself was becoming an increasing supporter of the nascent Nazi party. Nevertheless, uh, today Metropolis is considered a classic of science fiction cinema and has been restored to a running time of 148 minutes, so nearly its original runtime. Now, those bad critical reviews I mentioned earlier, uh, and the huge expense of making the film in the first place contributed to Metropolis being a financial failure, a massive financial failure, uh, single-handedly leading to the bankruptcy of German studio Ufa, which led to it needing to be bailed out by Paramount and become parufa I think. Uh, it's, it's been a while since I've read that word, but, um... Regardless, this led to Lang and von Harbaugh having to produce their next films independently. There was Spion in 1927, uh, Spies, which was a thriller starring Rudolf Kleinroga as a criminal mastermind, and Lang's current mistress, Gerda Mauris, as the beautiful Russian spy working for him. Then, in nineteen twenty eight, another science fiction picture, Frau im Mond, or Women in the Moon, which was also produced independently and depicted a manned mission to the moon by use of multi-stage rocket, a prescient notion not seen before in feature films that would later get that film banned by the Nazi party uh, during the 1930s due to its similarity with their secret V2 rocket program. In 1930... Seymour Nebenzel, a Jewish- German independent film producer and admirer of Lang, approached Lange to direct a film for his company, Prana Film, which at that time was leading the charge in transitioning the German film industry from silent to sound film. By this time, Lang was seeing Lily Latte for his mistress.
1: <laughs> what a name! While- oh my gosh, is that her actual name, or is that a pseudonym?
0: I'm not sure really. Okay. Meanwhile, von Harbaugh had begun her own love affair with I.E. Tendulkar, an Indian journalist 17 years her junior. Now, Tendulkar was a supporter of Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolent resistance movement, as well as an ardent Nazi. At the time in Berlin, most supporters of Gandhi were also Nazis uh, due to the anti-British sentiments of both, oh as goodness. well as the Nazi philosophy of each ethnicity having the right to their own homeland.
1: I didn't know that there were overlaps.
0: Lange began to advertise that his next film would be called Morder Unter Uns, uh the murderers among us and he immediately began receiving death threats from the nazi party Mm -hmm. and his attempts to rent studio space were blocked uh because based on the title alone the nazi party assumed it was an anti-nazi film
1: huh which is telling (laughs)
0: on yourself
1: yes it absolutely is
0: when lang explained the plot of the film uh which was to be about a child murderer the party relented and allowed production to commence. This film came about because Lang and von Harbaugh wanted to write a story about the worst crime you could commit, like what kind of person would commit the world's like worst crimes, and they sort of bandied about what the worst crime is for a while <laughs> before deciding on child murder. Child murder is the worst crime. Oh, At one point, they did consider making the movie about someone who like pesters people with anonymous letters, like Uh. a a 1920s, (laughs) like, like a 1920s, like stalker type. Sure. Um, But they later decided that child murder was worse.
1: (laughs) This just in, uh, child murder, slightly worse than Twitter.
0: Yeah. The film was based on the fascination that he and Von Harbaugh had had with the case of Peter Curtin. The Monster of Dusseldorf, uh, which they had followed closely in the newspapers in the late 1920s. Although, Lang would later be quick to state in interviews that the film's scenario drew inspiration from a number of cases and was, at the end of the day, completely fictional. That being said, the closeness of the events in M to real-world events... Um, meant that at the time of its release in Germany, it was sort of considered to be like a gritty docudrama, Mm -hmm. even though it kind of like today plays like some kind of morality fable. So, Sarah. Yes. Why don't you tell us about Peter Curtin and the strange rash of serial killers in Germany at the time?
1: Well, uh, I guess you could say Curtin... Is um, by technicality the first serial killer in Germany. Mm. In May 1913 in Dusseldorf, Germany, Peter Curtin was in the midst of a robbery. He came across a nine year old Christine Klein asleep. Curtin would strangle, then slash her throat, killing the child. This is the first. Definitively committed murder by Peter Curtin, a man who would become known as, as has been said, the Dusseldorf Monster, and more terrifyingly, as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Born into poverty in 1883, Curtin was the oldest of a large family of twelve other kids. Both parents were alcoholics and abusive. Um, his father, even uh, sexually abusing one of Curtin's older sisters. His father would also line the children up and then force them to watch as he had sex with the mother, his wife. Um, the look on Ben's face says it all. Unfortunately, you cannot see it. That's the tone of this whole bit of me talking. All this. Curtin would run away from home, um, but ultimately end up returning because he's a kid. But as he would run away, he began establishing his reputation as a thief and petty criminal. Now, Curtin claims that at nine years old is when he committed his first murders of drowning two classmates. One, uh, he pushed off a raft Um, And they couldn't swim. And so a second boy jumped in to help them. And Curtin claims that he held both their heads under the water. Those were considered accidents. So it's unclear if he actually murdered them.
0: You find that a lot with serial killers is it'll be like, this person confirmed, we know, killed four people, but upon arrest claimed that they had killed like 70 other people who were never found. That's, That's a real common thread.
1: At nine years old, he became friends with the local dog catcher, and together they would abuse and torture caught animals. At 13, that animal abuse developed into bestiality um, and involved also stabbing the animals like sheep uh, at the time of climax. That's what this is going to be, Ben. This is Peter Curtin. Um, At 16... He stole from his family and the uh, place where he was apprenticing and would run away, but was caught four weeks later, and this led to his first stint in jail. It was only one month, but it would not be his last time in jail. In the year 1900, he was age 17 and was again arrested for fraud and uh, incarcerated for four years. Once he got out, he was conscripted into the German army. Um, he quickly deserted and got into arson. Um, i
0: just getting into arson, you know?
1: He would say that the reason he liked arson and, and burning buildings is both the um, frenzy that would occur as people tried to put it out and he got, would get excited. Um, in multiple meanings of that word at that action. Um, And he also would daydream about uh, someone being burned alive in these buildings. So not even a year goes by, and he is back in jail for arson and robbery. And then he was released in 1913. During this period in jail, um, he was often in solitary confinement. Um, This particular jail was very strict, um, pretty tough disciplinary methods. Curtin would say that because of those disciplinary methods, that pushed him to harsher crimes to kind of get revenge on society. And he would fantasize about things like mass murder and um, violent sexual fantasies. So like I mentioned, he was released in 1913 and then immediately went back to crime. In May of that year is when he murdered nine-year-old Christine Klein. So the day after her murder, he went to the like bar that was across the street and would listen in to people gossiping about what happened. He would also, throughout the next several years, go to Klein's grave and um, reach climax after touching the soil of her grave. Two months after murdering Klein, um, he was committing another robbery, and he came across a 17-year-old girl. Um, He strangled her until he thought she was dead, but she only fell unconscious. Um, Unfortunately, she was not able to give a good uh, description of him. For arson and robbery, he went into jail again uh, for six years, um, getting out in 1921, when he tried to turn his life around, it seems. Um, he went and lived with his sister. He met and married a local woman who ran like a sweet shop named Augusta Scharf, and he tried to find some stable work. Ultimately, um, he would have some infidelities on the side where violence was quite frequent. Um, there are two women particularly involved in these infidelities. And when Auguste found out, these two women said, you know, he forced me. He, uh, one of them said he seduced me, which was actually punishable by law. So uh, he went to jail for six months. He also remained married to Auguste. After coming out of jail after those six months um, is when his um, most violent, I would say, spree of murders and attempted murders happened, um, beginning in 1929 in February, when he attacked the senior Apollonia Kuhn. Uh, She was stabbed 24 times and somehow survived. Um, Again, was not able to give much of a um, description Five days later, nine-year-old Rosa Olinger was strangled, then stabbed. He also, uh, when murdering her, um, achieved climax, and he would hide her body and then uh, eventually would return and burn it, uh, and then that's how it was discovered. Five days after that, he attacked and um, stabbed a 45-year-old male, uh, Rudolf Scheer. The range of victims, both in terms of age and gender, seemed to really puzzle police, Um, but they were sure that it was probably the same person because it was in the same neighborhood and they weren't robberies and they were all attacked with a pair of scissors. Particularly sure that it was the same guy was um, Lieutenant Inspector Ernst August Ferdinand Genat. By 1929, Gannat had been in the criminal police department for 24 years. So this is like a very experienced guy. However, when he started at the police department, there was no like separate homicide division. Um, it was just kind of like, you get the call, you go, you could be on robbery, you could be on homicide, whatever. Um, a dedicated homicide service was not established until about five years before this. With Genat's efforts, notably with another case with the murderer Friedrich Fritz Harman. Genat was in charge of reorganizing the department in 1925 and got his lieutenant inspector promotion. So imagine this guy is like hot on Curtin's tails. Um, so Curtin decided to lay low for several months until August when he attacked, strangled and stabbed a young woman named Maria Hahn. He would bury her body and then would repeatedly go back out to her, dig her up. Um, a couple times, I guess he tried to like nail her to a tree to like do like a mock crucifixion, but wasn't able to. So he would just like lie with her to try to distance himself from some of these earlier crimes, Curtin decided to start using a knife instead of scissors and would stab several people, including an 18-year-old woman, a 30-year-old man, and a 37-year-old man, as well as uh brutal attacks of two foster sisters in a, uh, age five and fourteen. And it was that case of the two foster sisters that really hit the news. Um, and got really publicized. Um, in this case, these two sisters were um, near a carnival, and he sent the 14 year old off to go buy cigarettes and then attacked the five-year-old. And then when the 14 year old returned, attacked and killed her um, in brutal ways, etc, there was also clear signs that he ingested their blood. Hence the vampire of Dusseldorf. So now we're entering the fall. He's continuing to attack. He has switched to a hammer this time um, attacking. And this time there have been more frequent kills rather than um, attempted murders with the murder of the two foster sisters um, really pushing a media frenzy. Um, Curtin then wrote a couple letters to police, to the newspaper about where to find Maria Hahn and then some other victims. And this helped his crimes gain both national and international attention.
0: Sure. It's that, you know, Jack the Ripper, Zodiac killer kind of thing,
1: right? Exactly. And this is when it sounds like Lang would have like really heard about the case and heard some of these details. Um, especially considering that uh, M is focused on a child murder and it's the two foster children uh, kind of started this media frenzy. Now, Chief Inspector Gannat noticed the handwriting, got a handwriting expert in, and they were able to tie all of these crimes to one person. At the time, they were theorizing that, like, it was a group of people, something like that. But no, it's clearly one person. And because they were able to tie it to one person, um, Gannett began calling Curtin a Syrian mortar, which translates to serial killer, and coins the term.
0: Hmm, interesting. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, so that's why he's technically the first, though I think you could argue that um, Fritz Harman was definitely a serial killer.
0: Yeah, and there's like earlier people who fit the definition, but I didn't know that Peter Curtin was the one for whom the term was like invented. So.
1: So now we are entering 1930. There are more hammer attacks, um though these seem to be more frequently non-fatal. Usually the victim would be um attacked and you know start bleeding. Curtin would achieve climax at the sight of blood and then he would let the person go. Um Curtin was finally caught in mid-May of that year. He knew that the police were closing in, thanks to a surviving victim named Maria Bedlik. Um, So he decided, you know what, I'm going to have my wife, August, because yes, he's still married, have her turn him in so she can get the reward money. Huh. In his words, uh, to set her up for a comfortable old age. Huh. So when he was arrested, um, he freely admitted what happened um, in a very, like, matter-of-fact way he would claim that it was because of society making him this way through all of the uh trials that he had gone through as a youth um and all of the injustices going on in society during uh this time because it was like we're entering the uh great depression mm-hmm. or we're in the great depression by this point
0: yeah and weimar germany had sort of its own problems
1: yeah he was extensively interviewed by psychiatrist Dr. Carl Berg, and through those interviews, it was determined that Curtin's primary motive wasn't uh, society but sexual pleasure mm-hmm. um, because the sight of blood from any victim would allow him to climax um, and began to be like the only way he would achieve climax. It was determined that he was not insane, so he stood trial again showed no remorse though from what i could read of the trial it was clear that he was like you guys seem to think this was bad so maybe this was bad but i don't see it that way kind of attitude
0: interesting because um like i don't know what the standards in germany in 1931 would have been but like when someone is declared legally insane right? Criminally insane and unfit to stand trial. Usually the definition of that is like the person can't tell like right from wrong, good from evil, like doesn't have a sense of morality. Um, So someone can be like, have a mental health disorder, but not be legally insane kind of Mm -hmm. thing, right? It's not a medical determination. But the theory behind it is that like you shouldn't be imprisoning or executing people who like don't understand that what they did was wrong and so you know this seems to be like he should have fit that definition maybe but the other thing about jurisprudence like the legal system is among the various different philosophies for why we have it is the idea that punishing wrongdoers helps a community achieve closure and catharsis And in those cases, it is very difficult to decide like not to try and execute this guy if like the whole community kind of wants you to. Right. And the Mm -hmm. other outcome would be like him just spending his life in a like a mental institution or something.
1: Well, from what I've read, um, because he had a clear recollection of his crimes, he was able to say, I killed this person, then that person, then that person, Hmm. Um, and didn't seem to get confused about what his actions were. He knew it was to kill them.
0: Right. Like he, he seemed to be clear minded about it.
1: Yeah. That's why they determined he was not insane. Got it. The jury at the trial uh, took about two hours to give the sentence, and he was sentenced to beheading by guillotine on July 2nd, 1931. Now, Dr. Berg was able to have, like, extensive interviews, both because of the determining of whether he's insane or not, but just, like, an unprecedented amount of access to him, to Curtin. So, after that access. And after he was executed, Dr. Berg published this first psychological study of a sexual serial killer titled The Sadist. Um, It was published in 1931 and then translated to English in 1938. So this movie, M, is coming out in 1931. We have Dr. Berg's book coming out and the actual execution of Curtin happening this year.
0: Yeah, and you said Curtin was executed in July? Yes. So the movie came out in May.
1: Okay. Yeah, so he would have been caught by the time that this movie was released, but not yet executed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is Peter Curtin.
0: So the reason I know that for sure that Peter Curtin was captured but not yet executed when they made this movie is because Lang conducted research for the film by spending eight days visiting the mental institution where they were keeping Curtin, where the doctor had his interviews with Curtin, and Lang interviewed several child murderers, including Peter Curtin.
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah. Uh, he also studied the cases of Fritz Harman, Carl Grossman, and Carl Denke. Meanwhile, von Harbaugh attacked the research from the other side... Uh, maintaining regular contact with Berlin police headquarters and getting access to the Berlin police force's communications and reports and case files of all these people, and like interviewing Gennat and uh, having like very unprecedented access to um, Alexanderplatz, which is the the name of um, Berlin police headquarters. So. They each researched the topic from two different angles to produce the screenplay, which is very much innovative in terms of its story structure because it's not like a mystery, but we are watching detectives put together clues, but those detectives aren't like armchair private detectives, they're police officers, and we're watching like actual criminal investigation techniques like the handwriting analysis that you mentioned and that kind of stuff which makes this essentially a police procedural Mm -hmm. which wasn't really a genre
1: at all at this time no the closest would be like a sherlock holmes where we're following an armchair detective
0: yeah you know the idea of telling a story about like a weird insane serial killer who's being pursued by police and we're getting like his point of view and the police's point of view and they're closing in and how will they catch him like how many movies is that described like how many tv shows yeah exactly like i think the line that you can draw really directly is to stuff like silence of the lambs but like you know yeah the cottage industry of tv shows that have this basic premise yeah that come from this yeah exactly
1: the CSI's. is Set across the country. Yeah, Criminal
0: Minds, all kinds. M was the pair's first sound film and one of the first major sound films in Germany, uh, period. And it was meticulously planned. Uh, Von Harbaugh's final screenplay was written on a typewriter that had three ribbons installed for different colors. Um, So it had camera and action instructions typed in black dialogue typed in blue and sound typed in red interesting so all of those elements were planned in the screenplay beforehand so for the lead role of the child murderer fritz lang cast peter Lorre, born laszlo lohenstein in hungary in 1904 to jewish parents lori began acting on stage in vienna at age 17 And by the late 1920s, he was appearing in the plays of Bertolt Brecht and was mostly known as a comedic actor. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: M was his first major film role, for which he did not audition or screen test. Lang wrote the script with Laurie in mind.
1: You would have just seen him on the stage?
0: Yeah, in minor comedic roles.
1: Wow, interesting.
0: Yeah, and he just was like, oh, that guy's gonna be perfect.
1: Probably because like as minor comedic roles, you're just like, yeah, he's unassuming. You would never think that he's a child murderer.
0: Yes. That's one of the big innovations of M is like showing that guy next door unassuming. Oh, he was so quiet. Mm-hmm. Murderer that's now like a big stereotype. But like before this, you know, murderers in movies were like, ah, ha, ha, ha.
1: Yeah. You look at Todd Slaughter movies. Exactly. Now, I think the first time Peter Lorre appeared on the show was Mad Love. Is that correct? Yes. So that's 1935. So this is um, four years before that.
0: That's right. This movie and praise for Lorre's performance in it would shoot Peter Lorre to stardom, Uh, but his Jewish ethnicity would necessitate his fleeing the country in 1933. Arriving in England, he would appear in Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, learning his part phonetically. And the success of that film would lead to his casting in Mad Love, which we covered all the way back in episode 52. Wow. Otto Wernicke was cast as police inspector Carl Lohmann, who is based on Ernst Gannat. And Wernicke would actually reprise that role in Lange's next film, Das Testament der Dr. Mabuse.
1: So... They occur in the same universe. Then. Yes, to, oh use modern,
0: to use modern parlance. Yes. Now, Vernica was married to a Jewish woman, but he was allowed to continue his career in Germany after the rise of the Nazi party by special dispensation of Joseph Goebbels, who considered him essential to German culture. Longtime listeners will remember in a lot of our discussions of Nazi-era Germany uh, around this time period that Goebbels had like a list of people for whom it was like, oh, it's okay for you to be Jewish because like you're a big star or oh, it's okay for you to not get drafted because you're a big star, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Speaking of that second category, actor Gustav Grunzgens uh, plays the character of the safecracker in this film. And he was a significant actor and director in Berlin's theater scene. He was in a relationship with fellow actor Klaus Mann, which was covered up by Grüngen's marrying Klaus's sister, Erika, who in turn was in a relationship with Klaus's wife, Pamela Vindikind.
1: <laughs> Can I have a sitcom about this, these two couples? Yeah,
0: Grüngen's signature role was as Mephistopheles in Goethe's Faust, but his role in M greatly increased his popularity and visibility. In 1934, he was appointed artistic director of the Prussian State Theater by the Nazi Party, and while he tried to volunteer to serve in the Wehrmacht in World War II and go fight for his country, Goebbels had him recalled from the front under the artistic exemption program. He was too important to Nazi culture. After the war, he was imprisoned by the Soviet NKVD, but after that, Term of imprisonment was over, he continued to act, appearing as Mephistopheles in a film version of Faust in 1960, directed by Peter Gorski. In 1963, Grungens died of an overdose of sleeping pills. Now, the script for M explored many issues in German culture at the time, um, a lot of the social problems of the era. Um, one of these things was an admiration for organized crime, Mm -hmm. which was commonly perceived by the average person at that time to have a kind of like order to it and a sense of honor that elevated gangsters over say these random horrific serial killers, but also over the corruption and incompetence of the police. Um, so M presents this like, highly organized criminal underworld um that kind of seems like very comic booky but was actually based in reality
1: mm-hmm. these were called ring varena which literally translates to ring clubs because you would have a secret ring to get in i see so you know a little comic booky but these were real like crime syndicate organizations um Germany had uh, seen these organizations since World War I. Um And, you know, on the one hand, yeah, mafia-like uh, crime rings aren't necessarily the best. On the other hand, they provided a lot of mutual aid and cultural activities. This is,
0: <laughs> to be fair, like common among crime rings like yeah. the mafia the tongs like they are both you know criminal and also deeply rooted in the community because well if you're deeply rooted in the community the community is going to keep paying their protection money and not get rid of you
1: yeah there was likely at least one ringverine in every major city in germany um activities would include the Organization of sex work, um, extortion, illegal gambling, drug and arms smuggling, robbery and fencing, as well as uh, counterfeiting currency.
0: And when you say fencing, what you mean is the selling of stolen goods, not en garde. Like they didn't run like fencing clubs.
1: Okay, this isn't Robin Hood. Um, Yes, the selling of stolen goods. So these
0: things are like halfway between the American mafia and like. Spectre from the James Bond novels.
1: <laughs> they did have a lot of uh, activities, including witness intimidation, providing alibis to other criminals in the ring, um, and they would actually support the families of members when they would you know, be shipped off to jail, which, if you recall Peter Curtin's history, uh, those visits to jail could be frequent. Now, part of why they might have in addition to the mutual aid thing um might have been considered uh like good or you know in the gray zone of good um is because they did have their own moral code um they had a certain uh, set of rules that you had to participate by and you could not be a convicted murderer or sex offender so i think that kind of speaks to you know they're wanting to protect themselves but they're also wanting to show that We're not trying to put the community at risk Mm -hmm. now because of Curtin being charged for robbery, fraud, and arson um, instead of murder or sexual offenses. He was likely part of, if not associated with club members.
0: When you say that these uh, ring Verena rose up like out of world war one It's probably best to remind listeners who have not been with the podcast since the beginning that that like post World War One Weimar era Germany was like a fucking mess. And, you know, getting things through the black market was like the way to get things. So, of course, you're going to see the rapid rise of organized crime in that environment.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. If anyone uh, recalls their social studies courses in high school, um, World War I uh, and the Treaty of Versailles saw Germany become a poverty stricken, disease riddled country, (laughs) other places as well. But Germany tends to be the focal point because that fall into poverty um, is usually tied to the rise of Nazis 15 years later. What's interesting, I thought was interesting. Um, so these these crime rings are well established, clearly. When the Nazis came to power, um, they claimed, yeah, they're gone. <laughs> we eradicated these these rings. They ended 1933, gone. These Ringwreine were in uh, operation um, post-World War II in East Germany. Um, they were eventually stamped out between, like, you know soviets and the the harsh realities of east germany but um they they clearly outlived the nazis i guess
0: mm. yeah because you know the big myth about nazis and fascists in general is that they are like extremely efficient and that like hey they were evil but at least you had law and order and that's uh, a myth that they like to tell you about themselves and it's easily believed by like lots of people who don't like Nazis but the truth is is that Nazis and fascists are extremely inefficient and very bad at their jobs because if your only concern is like getting promoted over that guy or like making sure that the big boss likes you over this other dude because your whole political system is just based around pleasing one psychopath um you aren't really concerned with like doing your job well you're concerned with making sure everyone else is doing their jobs poorly
1: yeah this is uh, of course speaking broadly because uh we are just a humble podcast right but Early 1930s, late 1920s, Germany is a very chaotic time for the average German. Communists and Nazis are brawling in the streets, um, usually with rhetoric uh, afterwards that the communists started it um, and us Nazis are just trying to uphold law and order when really, like, they're inciting it. So I understand why uh, there would be people turning to these crime syndicates as alternative methods of policing or justice systems, you know, I understand why these things happened. Mm. Um, If people want to learn more about how Germany looked, and how the film industry looked with the Nazi rise to power, you can check out our episodes 56 and 57 on um, 1935's Der Student von Prague and 1936's Fairman Maria. We go into pretty in depth coverage about where Germany's at, um, especially because those are like the only two horror films made under the Nazi regime.
0: Another um, big sort of social issue of the time in Germany that M addresses is the debate around the death penalty which Mm -hmm. had become a renewed debate due to the rise of modern psychology so before that the idea that like ah this person is you know a serial killer we don't have that word yet because ganat hasn't invented it but that's what this person is uh they're a danger to the community and if we don't do something they'll just keep killing people so we're going to kill them now now they are dead That is, justice has been served, revenge for the the families. We move on. But the rise of modern psychology meant that people were now getting acquainted with the idea that, like, serial murderers were, like, mentally disturbed, that they were psychopaths, and that, like, psychopathy was something that could be treated and maybe even cured one day. And so if this person is not like aware of what they're doing or like is you know wrong in the head and they could potentially be treated and cured and one day live like a normal life then like is it fair to execute them and this debate was you know now a kind of issue um especially with you know these serial killers in the news and whatnot
1: yeah at the time of peter Curtin's trial and eventual execution. Um, the minister of justice in Germany at the time was a known opponent to capital punishment. Um, Curtin actually, uh, he didn't lodge an appeal, but he did petition for a pardon and it was rejected clearly. Um, but it's definitely like front of mind for people, even to just Peter Curtin.
0: So M was shot in six weeks in a soundstage outside of berlin with cinematography by fritz arno wagner wagner was one of the most acclaimed cinematographers of the weimar era he had started out as a newsreel cameraman before becoming a wartime cameraman during world war I. he served in the elite hussar cavalry and was wounded in battle and after the war he became a studio cameraman on feature films Wagner was one of the two major cinematographers of the Expressionist school in Germany in the 1920s, the other being Karl Freund. And Wagner had shot Der Mude Todd for Fritz Lang in 1921, and he had replaced Günther Krampf on Nosferatu uh, after Krampf took ill. Uh, Krampf would later go on to shoot The Student of Prague in 1926 and The Ghoul in 1933. Wagner's work on Nosferatu was highly innovative, um, including the use of trick photography, shadows, uh, slow and fast motion, um, all kinds of things. He also worked with F.W. Murnau on Schloss Vogelod that same year, as well as Der Brennede Acker for Murnau in 1922, Spion for Lang in 1928, and Die 3 Groschen Oper for gw pabst in 1931 after m he would also shoot dust testament der dr mabusa in 1933 for lang after many of his director collaborators left germany in the 1930s wagner was forced to shed his distinctive cinematographic style for a more generic one in order to get jobs shooting the glossy bland Movies that were the artistic goals of Nazi cinema in order for him to, you know, maintain employment. He died in 1958 in a car accident. Now, Fritz Lang wanted to be very careful and deliberate with his use of sound in this picture. Mm -hmm. And he also wanted to avoid having this film feel locked off and stagey, as many early sound films did. So um, he shot one third of the film silent and used that silence to sort of punctuate moments and build tension as well as give him the freedom to use long flowing tracking shots the soundtrack itself has many innovative layers including voiceover narration which like
1: again very uh associated to the like detective trope or style
0: yeah and something that you have to consider is like if it's 1931 and you know sound films only been around a couple of years, like the concept of voiceovers, like period, is a new concept. Yeah, right.
1: And probably would be more strongly associated with newsreels as well at the time, right? Potentially.
0: Um, another thing that M does that was sort of new at the time was sounds occurring off camera, like hearing things that you didn't see, um, and Murnau found out that with the use of sound he could actually be more creative in his editing than he could in silent films because of the fact that he didn't need to show you everything happening he Mm -hmm. could have you hear stuff while he was showing you something else most innovative was the adoption of the leitmotif technique from opera where a piece of music is associated with a particular character In this case, the killer whistles the tune in the Hall of the Mountain King, Um, and it's so associated with him that, you know, Lang can have that whistle happening without showing you Peter Lorre in the frame, and you know he's near. Um, Now, Lorre actually couldn't whistle, so it (laughs) is, in fact, Fritz Lang on the soundtrack doing the whistling. M premiered in Berlin on May 11th, 1931, um, initially to great acclaim. It came out in the U S in 1933, where it was less well-regarded by critics and audiences. Although it did impress Irving Thalberg of MGM, uh, which led to Laurie getting his contract with them. As was common at the time, they shot scenes with dialogue in German, English, and French. So, Peter Laurie's first English role, technically speaking, is the English language version of M. But mm-hmm. like he couldn't speak English at the time. Um, additionally, Fritz Lang only shot the German scenes. He left like the reshooting of scenes in French and English to assistant directors. Um, he just,
1: yeah, you know, he's like, I'm good.
0: Yeah. So this potentially explains why the English language version two years later in the US was like, not really well received. Mm-hmm. But with the success of M, Lang and von Harbaugh were emboldened to begin their next production with producer Seymour Nibenzel. Uh, and so in late 1932, they began production on *Dust Testament der Dr. Mabusa, the second Dr. Mabusa film, starring Rudolf Klein-Roga and Otto Wernicke. Now in this film, the mad Dr. Mabusa, who is in like an insane asylum after he was captured at the end of the first film, was made to deliberately resemble Adolf Hitler. Oof! Quotes from Hitler and Nazi party officials were used as dialogue for Mabusa and other criminal characters in the film. Meanwhile, while this movie was being produced, Lang had come home from the set early one day to find von Harbaugh in bed with I.E. Tendelkar. In a rage, Lang threw them out. Or if you talk to Von Harbaugh, she left him. Depends on whose story you want to believe. But Lang's affair with Lily Latte was well known in Berlin at the time. And so like the common public reaction to this incident um, was that Lang deserved the comeuppance. Yeah. Now, Von Harbaugh ceased working on the film after this incident, uh, and that is the point at which it became far more explicitly anti-Nazi. Lange began divorce proceedings against von Harbaugh, uh, with the official given reason in the divorce papers being that she was refusing to have sex with him, though Lang would later tell interviewers that von Harbaugh joining the Nazi party was the reason for the divorce. You can see that everybody's trying to sort of control their image. Before the planned premiere of Testament, which was going to come out, I think, in May of 33, uh, the Nazis came to power. Yeah. And Goebbels was put in charge of the Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Upon viewing Testament, Goebbels realized it was very problematic for the Nazi regime, even though he personally admired the film and would later show it at like private parties to friends. So he arranged for a meeting with Lang uh lang had begun to make preparations to leave germany yeah Um,
1: (laughs) he's like i'm getting the fuck out of here later he would say that this was
0: because you know he had jewish heritage and like was scared for his life and wanted to get out from the nazi regime
1: i mean maybe but dude you made an explicit anti-nazi movie and they just came to power you're getting out of dodge
0: it is suspected that his reasons at this time before this meeting with Goebbels for having begun these preparations to leave Germany was more about embarrassment over the divorce. Oh. um, And wanting to, like, get to France where he was, like, better regarded critically. Um, So he gets brought in for this meeting, and Goebbels tells him that his style of filmmaking is exactly the style of filmmaking that Hitler wants for Germany. Could he please stay and make Nazi movies? Oh, and nothing personal but Testament of Dr. Mabusa has to be banned because it shows that, quote, any determined group of people is capable of overthrowing the state with violence, unquote. So Lang refused the offer. And so Testament of Dr. Mabusa was banned in Germany. It was released elsewhere in Europe. Things get a little fuzzy here. Um, That meeting took place in March and Lang wouldn't actually leave Germany until June. In the meantime, he would travel between Berlin and Paris back and forth as he was setting up a directing job in Paris to be ready for when he got there while also going through and finalizing his divorce proceedings in Berlin. And because of this, there is doubt cast on Lang's story that the reason he left Germany was because he had just turned down Joseph Goebbels' offer of being a German filmmaker and had his film banned and was afraid for his life. Um, and there's some feeling that, like, well, you dilly-dallied and you took several months to get out of there, so, like, maybe, actually, you didn't mind Nazis and it was more about the personal thing with von Harbaugh.
1: Both things can be true.
0: So, by mid-1933, Lang was out of the country, as was Peter Lorre, as was producer Seymour Nebenzahl, and eventually they all made it to Hollywood. Meanwhile, Goebbels band M in 1934, basically out of spite... Yeah. Um, Despite the fact that his initial. Imp- Despite? Despite the fact that his initial impression of M was that it was the perfect film due to its absence of humanitarian sentiment.
1: I take issue with that. I would not see that in this movie. I think that it is quite clear that there is human sentiment.
0: I think Goebbels liked The Kangaroo Court taking peter laurie's character to justice and that there wasn't like sympathy for laurie
1: but maybe that's what he means i i we can talk about it after
0: for sure m would not be seen again in germany until 1966 after m was banned clips from it were used in a 1940 propaganda film uh, called der Ewige jude the eternal jew Mm. which was presented as a documentary but it's just a propaganda film the purpose of the film was to illustrate that jews aren't human um the literal thesis of it is that like they are parasites in human hosts
1: like that one alien in men in black
0: right yeah
1: what the fuck
0: um sorry and so for the purpose of illustrating that jews like Fritz Lang and Peter Lorre produced degenerate art. Uh, Clips from this movie were used to show like only a degenerate would like act in a part like this or make a movie about such a thing. They also used clips from all kinds of Jewish entertainers, uh, even mistakenly Charlie Chaplin, who was not Jewish. This propaganda movie also does a lot of like taking clips out of context and using narration to present them in a different light. The scene where, Laurie is saying like he can't help but kill people was used in a section of the film to argue that Jews deserve to die
1: oh, because geez. they,
0: they can't help but be degenerates. And that is basically M is a good movie, but the way that it is wrapped up in Nazi shit is really tough to Chew on, I guess, yeah, and it's it's sort of the problem of being a piece of art made in a very fraught time period that is sort of trying its best to not be about that thing because it's impossible to watch it and not think of the thing anyway. yeah von harbaugh stayed in Germany, uh, though she had to keep her marriage to Tendelkar. Uh, which occurred soon thereafter, a secret due to Nazi laws against miscegenation. During this period of the Nazi-controlled film industry, von Harba went on to write a further 26 films. During the war, she worked directly for the party, doing emergency medical care and other similar efforts, receiving a Medal of Merit due to her efforts saving lives during air raids. After the war, she was placed in a British internment camp and made to work cleaning rubble. She claimed that she had only joined the party to help immigrants like her husband. She was released from the internment camp in 1950, and she died in 1954 um, after a screening of Dermuda Todd in her honor when she fell and broke her hip and went to hospital and died. She had... Two pictures on her bedroom wall at the time of her death, Gandhi and Hitler. Fritz Lang made films in Hollywood from 1936 to 1957. In 1951, producer Nebenzel made an English language remake of M, which Lang joked led to him getting the best reviews of his career (laughs) as critics slammed the remake and talked about how great his original film was. Yeah. Um, Lang always regarded M as the best film he ever made. Even over
1: Metropolis.
0: Yeah, he didn't like Metropolis, um, (sighs) primarily because of the fact that the Nazis really liked it a lot. So he sort of distanced himself from it later. In 1957, he returned to Germany, um, wanting to, you know, go back to his native land and make movies in German again. Um, he made... That adaptation of von Harbaugh's Das Indische Grabmal, finally, in 1959, the script that he met her working on, Mm -hmm. Um, and he also made a third Dr. Mabusa film in 1963. However, Lange was disappointed by how many ex-Nazis and collaborators there were still working in the film industry, and he returned to America, though he did not resume making films. After Von Harbaugh's death, Lang often spoke very highly of her. Um, He wouldn't let interviewers downplay her contributions to his films. And, you know, he would insist on her getting like due credit and being seen for the hard work she did, even though when he was in Hollywood the first time during like the 40s, um, he would often ascribe elements of his films that he didn't like to her and sort of try as much as possible to distance himself. in 1971, he finally married Lily Latte, and in 1976, he passed away of a stroke. Today, M is regarded as an all time film classic. This is a, you know, 100 percent Rotten Tomatoes, gets on top 10 films of all time, lists kind of movie. Um, And it is most importantly, I think, the key stepping stone between the German expressionism of the 1920s and the film noir of the 1940s. Um, It is not really either of those genres, but you need it to get from one to the other. Mm -hmm. It is available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection in a restored edition and can be streamed on the Criterion Channel and on Canopy and rented on itunes
1: well folks hopefully you can watch along um thank you for powering through some uh unpleasant content in this first half you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss m from 1931 directed by fritz lang
0: see you on the other side everybody
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching M from 1931. (laughs) Doesn't (laughs) have an exclamation point after it. M. There we go. Well, I guess it's a singular M, so it's just M. From director Fritz Lang, 1931. Ben, I don't know how many times that you've seen this movie, but probably the first time that you've seen it since covering a lot of horror movies um did that color any of your enjoyment not really um this movie was basically as i remembered it
0: still good yeah i always forget how this movie ends like i'm never sure what the resolution is and then i watch the movie and i'm like oh that's why i forget
1: because there is no resolution. Right. yeah
0: because it's an ambiguous ending yeah yeah
1: seeing this movie again I was struck by how often some of the visuals in this my brain mixes up and attributes to visuals from the third man yeah that's fair Um, both very stark lighting you know it's just similar styling
0: Mm -hmm. similar sort of like chased fugitive plot elements yeah at times
1: yeah definitely different tones though yes But how about I give the synopsis and then we can dig into it. Yeah, absolutely. I will say that like
0: perhaps more than many other movies, a synopsis of M just like can't communicate what the movie is
1: like. Yeah, I'm going to do my best um, by kind of explaining like order of shots in certain sequences, that sort of thing. You're set in Berlin, Germany. And there have already been a few murders. Um, we see that there are some kids playing games about a man in black coming and taking them away just to kind of paint, you know, the everyday knowledge of there's a murderer about a child murderer about. We see a woman at home. She's like a stay at home mom and she's lovingly setting the table and waiting for her daughter Elsie to come home from school. Meanwhile, we see Elsie uh, walking through the streets, playing with her ball, um, passing flyers about missing and murdered children, and then we see that a man appears, or rather his shadow. We don't see his face, but we do hear his whistle. He buys her a balloon from a nearby blind man, um, buys her some candies. Then, uh, as we see that the mom is still like waiting and getting nervous, we see little Elsie's ball rolling out of some bushes and the balloon lost on the wind um and it's clear that Elsie is gone next we see that man writing a erratic letter to the press uh the gist of which is the police didn't publish my letters so now I'm going to send them to the press um I am the murderer and I'm not done yet Next, we follow the police. Um, Specifically, there's a phone call with um, the commissioner to the minister talking about everything that they're trying to do. You know, the minister's like, well, show me the results. And the chief's kind of detailing what he's, uh, what they're doing. And then we hear that voiceover as we see what's on the screen. Um, So handwriting analysis, fingerprint analysis, um, the process of when they find a clue at the scene, what they do to follow up on that clue, that sort of thing. All of this is intercut with the reactions of everyday people to the latest murder, getting a little paranoid about, you know, who's talking to kids. And in the sequence of being intercut with like, Everyday people, if you are familiar with who Peter Lorre is, you will spot him in one of these shots. But at the time for someone watching this movie for the very first time who is not aware that Peter Lorre is the murderer, uh, it would just be some random guy who's just like everyone else. Now, spearheading the police efforts to catch this child murderer is Inspector Loman. Ultimately, the police tried to find this murderer by cracking down on local crime through raids. And this is really disrupting the business of the local Ring Verenae, and they've had enough. So the local crime syndicate come up with a plan to use beggars as a surveillance system to try to find this murderer. Meanwhile, we see that the police are also planning um, a way to catch the murderer, and they decide to look at lists of people who have been released from asylums, um, either, you know, as cured or like, you don't need to be here anymore um, over the past five years. We see a police officer head to an apartment uh, where a man named Hans Beckert lives. Um, This police officer is following up on this asylum thing, But when he gets there, it turns out Beckert had actually just left, and we are now following Beckert, uh, Peter Laurie's character. So as the cop looks through Beckert's rooms, we see Beckert through the street, buying groceries, window shopping. And then he sees a young girl, and he becomes very focused, and he begins his uh, iconic whistling We see that he begins to follow her, clearly like getting closer and closer, but then she happens to meet up with her mom. His plans are disrupted and he gets very upset about this. He tries to shake off that he had a plan to murder this child, but he doesn't seem able to. Uh, He even goes to a cafe and orders like two shots of cognac and um, he still can't shake it. And the way that it's communicated to us that he can't shake it is uh, he just can't get that tune out of his head that he was whistling next we see that blind beggar with the balloons again and he hears that whistle and that's when he remembers that on the day that elsie disappeared he sold a balloon to a man who bought a balloon for a young girl so he gets another member of the syndicate to follow beckert who has now um picked up another girl and is you know taking her to get candies and and treats and that sort of thing now this criminal you know, is following and he's pretty suspicious, but he needs to get back up. So what he does, so he doesn't lose Beckert is he marks his hand with an M with chalk. And then he passes by Beckert, slaps him on the back and, you know, walks it off, whatever. But now there's an M symbol on his back. So criminals begin to follow and corner Beckert. Girl gets away and Beckert escapes into an office building that happens to just be getting locked up for the night. So the criminals decide it's time to break in uh, our specialty. (laughs) Meanwhile, the police are finding evidence that makes Beckert a stronger suspect. And so they begin to wait in his house for him to return so they can actually question him. We see that the criminals manage to break into the office building and are tying up guards, going floor by floor, room by room, searching for the murderer, and they finally find him. Unfortunately, right when they believe they have him cornered, one of the watchmen uh, pulls the alarm and the police are on the way. So they manage to get Beckert, but it means that they have to really hurry out of the office building and leave no trace behind. Unfortunately, this means that... uh, one criminal whose name is Franz gets left behind and caught by the police. Now we see that Franz is getting questioned and he's like, No, I'm not I'm not saying anything. Why like, can you pin on me? Property damage, I guess, but like we didn't steal anything. We we were just in the building. To try to scare Franz into telling on his comrades, um, the policeman brings him to Inspector Lohmann to kind of imply that. One of the watchmen were killed, and so Franz is going to be tried as a murderer. And this gets Franz to spill right away, because he's like, I don't want to be involved in murder. He's like, yeah, Inspector Lohman, um, we were after the child murderer. And the inspector can't believe it. Uh, he's shocked to the point where he drops his pipe out of his mouth, because like, his detectives were waiting at Beckert's house. So Franz spills the beans. Next, we see that Beckert has been taken to an old abandoned distillery to be tried at this makeshift criminal court, a night court, if (laughs) you will. There is some back and forth deliberation of why he's doing this. What's his motive? Um, Beckert says he can't help it. And the uh, jury of his peers, I guess you could say, um, are saying, you know, Well, we won't let you go because then you'll just plead insanity, be taken care of by the state for the rest of your life. And ultimately, if you can't help but kill, then we, for the good of the community, we should kill you. Now, Becker tries to argue like, but I'm a human being. And he does have a defense attorney and the defense is giving like good reasons for like, no, you shouldn't kill him. Just turn him over to the police but ultimately, it becomes clear that, like, you know, people are shouting, no, kill him. Think of what the mothers would want, etc. Now, the crowd of the court um, are about to attack Beckert when the police survive. Um, everyone puts up their hands. We see that Beckert gets taken. Next, we see that there's clearly, like, we are set in a uh, actual court of law. And then we cut to Mrs. Beckman, Elsie's mother, and she closes the film by saying that no sentence will bring dead children back. We have to keep closer watch over the children, all of you. And that's the end. So I really like this movie. Um, There are things about it that I don't like, but I I can't really hold it against it. And there are things that I really appreciate.
0: Interesting. I'm interested to hear what are the things that you don't like, but I don't really know where to like start with Mm -hmm. talking about this movie there's so many things to talk about like thematically but also like on a filmmaking craft level like just tons and tons um
1: you can really see the way that lang was experimenting with sound yes in this um it's one of the things that i really like about the movie i think like a best example is when elsie is first heading home she's about to walk across the street and then reacts when we hear a sound of like a honking horn, and we hear it before the car even arrives onto the shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like an example of the way that Lang is using sound to kind of expand the world. And um, there's also the way that it's being used for editing and intercutting. Like when um, the criminals are coming up with the plan to use the beggars, they cut halfway through a sentence to the police coming up with a plan and they're both like having the same conversation but in mm-hmm. different contexts
0: yeah there's also like scenes where there's just silence mm-hmm. like where we see like cars moving and people running around where there should be sound and there just isn't mm-hmm. so there's a lot of definitely like unique uses of sound the thing that struck me and usually does strike me about M is that the editing style still feels so modern Mm -hmm. um the movie is telling you a story and it's moving from topic to topic in the kind of like flowing logical fashion of someone telling you a story Mm -hmm. rather than trying to show you everything that's happening through the eyes of like just a few central characters yeah like the movie does eventually develop a few central characters, but it doesn't have that Hollywood need for like a young man and woman who are in love with each other to be your like identification figures through the entire film.
1: It's a really interesting approach to have the camera be kind of omniscient in the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the movie has, it's not like a documentary, but it's almost kind of a documentary feel in that it has this freedom to just kind of go where the story needs to go. The movie has, like, voiceover narration, but it's not like a documentary voice... It's not like a documentary voiceover narration of someone being like, this is Berlin, a quiet town where nothing ever happened until the child murderer came. What it is, is it's, um... The movie is always showing even when it is telling. Yeah. Um, Like, scenes of exposition show you... The process of what's being discussed when it's being discussed so when you have two characters sitting around talking about something the movie shows you what they're talking about but keeps their dialogue going as voiceover so you see all this procedural stuff that the police are doing as we're getting the dialogue from the commissioner which continues the conversation thus keeping the story moving forward but also explains what we're being shown. And the fact that we're being shown it rather than just having to watch two guys talk on the phone is used to a great benefit in order to give us a lot of information and flavor and story very quickly. The movie is always moving forward.
1: Yeah, I really like the way that it does world building, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting because on the one hand, like it's set in like the regular world. So Mm. you wouldn't think that you would need to do world building. But I guess what it's building out is the way that these two groups of people look at the world. And by these two groups of people, I mean the police and the uh, Ring Verena.
0: Right. The pacing of this movie is just very appealing to me. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, the other thing you have to remember when you watch this movie is like, no one did police procedurals. Yeah. Right. So all of this might be new information to an audience. What really strikes me is, um, so I've read Homicide by David Simon and I've watched the TV show that was based on that book. And I've watched David Simon's The Wire and you know, a lot of other cop stuff, uh, that's on TV. The presentation of cops here is like, yeah, this is basically still what cops are like like what how they do things at least how they did things when simon wrote that book in the late 80s anyway um where you have you know the shit always rolls downhill we go from like the minister to the commissioner to the detectives in terms of who's you know getting yelled at and you know the idea of a red ball case where it's like they have nothing. They have found nothing on this guy and they have like 30 binders filled with files because they're just having, they have no leads. So they're just doing everything in this like shotgun, you know, apply overtime and manpower on it until something comes up kind of fashion, right? Mm -hmm. The stuff where it's like the officers like combing the forest's outside for like if someone's deposited a body out there or something like it's all very familiar and it's all kind of the same shit that gets done when you need to solve a murder now and you have nothing to go on
1: yeah i liked that the cops like these are competent cops Mm -hmm. but they're slow yeah whether that's because you know they do things methodically um they don't necessarily have the resources of like a bunch of beggars you know um but they're just like slow but it's not like the criminals outsmart the police like the police were on the guy's trail
0: well yeah so that's the thing right is like with the way the movie's intercut the scene where the detective realizes like oh i think it is beckert you know based on this evidence we found in his apartment happens at like the same time that the beggars are like, Oh, that's the guy. Yeah. Like they're closing in on him at the same time. They figure it out at the same time. Right.
1: I did have a good chuckle when, for when the cops realize that it's Beckert or Mm. have like a, you know, a a light bulb moment that might mean that there's more to Beckert than just, you know, Mm -hmm. someone who isn't a lead is, um, the cop who was originally in the apartment is listing out what he found. And there's like this particular brand of cigarettes and Loman is like, uh, this wasn't the brand, but Marlboro, 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 Marlboro. And then every time he repeats it, the camera zooms in a bit. Yeah. And then another bit, because it's just like, it's like those characteristic, Perhaps even tropey elements of one phrase tipping off the detective being like, it was the doctor. Yeah,
0: it's 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 funny how many things in this movie are like still cliches in this genre to today. Yeah, Um, even the the thing where they play the mind games with Franz to get him to talk is like very much in the mold of like how the cops in David Simon's work are. Um, you know, how cops get people to confess, which is like with mind games. And I guess like part of why I find that all very impressive is it's so different from how police were portrayed in like american films around this time yeah where
1: they were often like comedic relief
0: or just like dumb brutes like cop interrogations were just depicted as like yeah we tie him to a chair and put a big light on him in the dark and then we just beat him up until he talks right yeah whereas like these kinds of mind games are like much more what police actually do they're they're not like clever mind games but They're mind
1: games. Yeah. Um, Well, make him think that he's involved in a murder. So he should tell us everything. So we, you know, don't stick it to him. Right. (laughs) Asterisk. Don't trust cops. Always have a lawyer present. Yes. Even if you are innocent, have a lawyer present if you're talking to cops.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. The thing about the portrayal of the police here is it's very neutral. Um, Mm -hmm. Like they aren't. Being shown to be like dumbasses or corrupt or something, but they also aren't being shown to be like paragons of heroics either.
1: Yeah, they're just people.
0: Um, and the portrayal of the criminals is very like neutral as well. You know, a lot of that inner cutting is really meant to give you kind of a like, we're not so different, you and I, kind of like sense <laughs> to things, right?
1: But at the same time, the movie is acknowledging when there are some big differences. And I think a key example of this that I really like, because it's always so ridiculous, is when we are intercutting between the criminals coming up with a plan and the cops coming up with a plan. Everyone is just smoking like Mm. it is so smoky in here. And it just seems to like grow as those sequences continue. And then when the criminals go, ah, we'll use the beggars. We cut to a beggar um, at like a food kitchen and he's counting out his cigarettes and goes to light one and then goes, no, I'll save it. And there's like hardly any smoke
0: right. where the beggars are. Right. Just kind
1: of showing like they don't have anything. Right.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that can be odd about this movie from a modern perspective or like compared to standard movies although i i think that when audiences watch this movie they don't notice it because the movie flows so well that you just kind of go with it but there are basically three movies here there's sort of the montage opening that serves as our exposition and setup where we don't really have characters yet we're just following lines of dialogue that sort of roll over into the next scene in order to give us transitions one of the earliest examples is there's a crowd of people outside like a community bulletin board or something and there's a notice about the murder posted and the guys you know in the back of the crowd are like hey you up front like read it out because we can't see it's too small so he starts reading it out and then with the sentence just continuing completely unbroken we cut to like some like bourgeois middle class merchant rich dudes Uh, sitting in like a club room, reading the newspaper and just reading the same thing. And it's just a seamless transition using Mm -hmm. the voiceover from one scene to the other of reading the newspaper. Absolutely. Um, Then you have the middle portion of the movie, which is like the thriller portion, which is kind of like a, like a chase heist movie kind of of like you know everyone's after Beckert and he's trying to find a place to hide and then okay we've got him cornered here so how do we get in well we've got to plan this caper and get in and do the things and you know oh are they going to catch him are they not and then finally you have the ending which is this like philosophical section of the movie like a like a star trek episode where people <laughs> where you use a courtroom to let people like argue philosophical points back and forth and were asked as an audience to ruminate about issues like mob justice and the rights of man and the plight of the insane and like the moral purpose of the justice system and the death penalty and stuff like that you know the movie develops characters sort of midway through like the second part of those three, where we start to learn about Lohman, um, a guy called the safe cracker, who's like the leader of the criminals and Beckert, right? Those are our kind of three main figures, but yeah, it's like not structured the way that like a movie nowadays is structured. Mm -hmm. And there's really no reason why movies now are not done like this. It's just like an assumption that people, need a character to latch on to and follow through a whole movie. Like there's just these rules of movie making that have built up in Hollywood over the years. Mm-hmm. Right. But like there's something really freeing about the way that this movie just tells its story by telling the story. Yeah. You know,
1: I really like Peter Laurie's performance, um, particularly because As you've kind of pointed out, he's not the central focus, both when the film does develop characters, there's two other people, but also like it's only for that middle section. And I I appreciated that because a lot of the ways that modern storytelling has started to kind of expand upon IP Mm. is by going like, what made uh, the dude from the Bates Motel like this Mm -hmm. let's give him an origin story right and with m we don't need to see what society may or may not have brought beckert to kill children yeah it's Um, not important yeah it's enough that he's here now right
0: because that's the story we're telling exactly and we're not telling the story to set up
1: a franchise yeah a bunch of other different stories right coming next summer n the (laughs) sequel to m (laughs) Oh, boy. Thank you. (laughs) I'll be here all week. Um,
0: (laughs) I really like the way that this movie is able to, like, dispose of characters when they aren't important anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, hey, these characters are in this scene right now because that's the scene we're doing. But, like, there's no reason to keep having them in the movie once that scene is over.
1: Yeah. One of the reasons that this movie, I think, feels so modern, yes, the editing style, but the fact that there's, like a gray morality
0: yeah for sure
1: there's no like i'm the upstanding good cop and i'm the evil uh, child murderer as i said the cops aren't good nor bad they're competent but they're slow the criminal syndicate actually catch the murderer but they aren't good people like they are ready to just murder beckert whether you believe in capital punishment or not Um, mob justice is never really positively looked upon they also like hurt the watchmen in order to uh, gain full access to the office building Um, they aren't they aren't good people but as different communities um, the criminals and the police um, they're coming together to try to like protect uh, their neighborhood in the case of the criminals. They are a community coming together to protect themselves, face this um, injustice head on, this um, tragedy in their midst head on, and to really be the ones to hold Beckard accountable. There's an overall sense in the movie that a
0: problem like this affects everybody, Yeah. right? That like, we have to come together as a community. Um, and that's really, that idea is really the one idea that the movie really has a point of view on mm-hmm. like you're talking about that gray morality and it's kind of a double-edged sword for M in a way but the one thing that it definitely wants to communicate is that like a problem like this affects everybody and it only gets solved if we all work together and basically the only I think the only behavior that the movie really unequivocally comes down on is being wrong other than child murder is like when The police and the criminals both find themselves frustrated with like average common people who either like, oh, I don't know anything. I don't remember anything like don't want to cooperate or think it's not their problem. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, what does this have to do with me or use it as like an opportunity to like witch hunt their friends? Like the police are like, hey, we need leads. And so, you know, they get a bunch of false leads from people who are just like, oh, I don't like the look of that guy downstairs or whatever. Right.
1: Exactly. Um, Yeah.
0: The theme of the community and the rights and responsibility of the community come up repeatedly in the movie, examined from multiple different sides, and it comes up like early and often, right? Like the first character that we really have in M is the community.
1: Yeah, because we get all of this intercutting, we get this omniscient camera Panning around from the children playing to the people, the women doing laundry to people picking up their kids from school, um, someone walking down the street uh, with a dog like it, it really just establishes you in the world and builds that world. It, it would be kind of interesting to compare the way that M builds this neighborhood um, as like a character and the way Spike Lee does in sure. Do the Right Thing. Um, Because they both really try to give that neighborhood where the incidents take place a point of view, a perspective and as a character.
0: Yeah. So the double-edged sword part of the gray morality Mm -hmm. is the movie shows us all these different points of view and really lets them all get like their fair time, as it were. But ultimately, we never learn Beckert's fate. We don't know if he gets sentenced to death by the court or if he gets sentenced to jail time or if he gets off on a technicality or if he goes to one of the asylums the sort of kangaroo court says that like one of the reasons why they should kill him is because the justice system if he's found insane would just send him to an asylum and he would just get like released when they deem that he's cured and then he could just relapse and do this all again the thing about that argument is it's within the world of the movie literally true mm-hmm. because the cops catch beckert because he's already been in an institution and was released
1: the movie does specifically name out the murderer fritz hasman mm-hmm. he was in an asylum and escaped and was given refuge by his family um and then committed more crimes so yes. yeah
0: so you can feel that frustration right? That really real frustration of people with the justice system and, and the fairness or unfairness of it. Um, and the difficulty that people have with cases like this, where you have people being like, well, you have to sympathize with the murderer. They're not really in control of what they're doing. You know, they're a human being. Um, and other people being like, right, but like he killed a bunch of children. So, um, yeah. and being frustrated with like the way that the
1: justice system handles things. I like one of the reasons that the uh, safe cracker Mm. leader of the criminals, one of the reasons he gives to Beckert for why this is like a fair trial is everyone here has gone through the justice system, whether it's been a result of like six months in jail or 10 years. Like we understand the justice system. So we are a fair and impartial jury right for your crimes and I think that's such an interesting point of view
0: absolutely on the other hand the movie basically leaves it up to audience preference like whatever you want to believe happened to Beckert you can believe because Mm -hmm. the movie doesn't tell you and instead the film brings us back to the mother right from the beginning you know, basically with the final remark of the movie being like, no matter what happens to Beckert, it's not going to bring back these dead kids. And, you know, not to cheapen the ending of M, because it's like a pretty powerful ending, but basically M ends by saying, won't someone please think of the children?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's still a plea to the community mm-hmm. that we, you, sitting there in the seats, need to look out for your kids fellow man and for Mm -hmm. your community for the children
0: yes and like lang is right in a sense like what really matters here is that these innocent lives have been snuffed out and that you know we all need to look out for each other and stuff but it does remind me a bit of the simplistic ending of metropolis that gave him so much trouble m tends to not get the same flack that metropolis does i think because its ending is much bleaker Mm -hmm. And when an ending is bleak, it tends to get like a very free pass from like film intelligentsia as like more real or whatever. And it's happy endings that get like the magnifying glass put on them. Um, But there's a real similarity in that after introducing the audience to a bunch of complex social questions, the film in, you know, that typical apolitical Lang fashion that we talked about doesn't take a side. Um, and instead asks us to leave the film considering a more humanistic point that we can, like, all agree on, right? Like, you said that the movie has a dim view of mob justice. I don't really know if it gets far enough to actually, like, condemn it, because it gives all this reason why, like, the mob needs to take care of this because the police can't and, and all of these things. And so, you know, Metropolis says... The workers in this city are being like horrifically mistreated, but also like the guy at the top of this city is going through like a horrible, like personal tragedy and like everybody's got problems. And so rather than siding with one side or another, Metropolis ends with being like, we all have to be compassionate to one another. And that's how we move forward. And that's fair and true, but it kind of leaves all those social questions unanswered, just like what we have here in M. And, you know, the fact that M examines all these questions and doesn't give us, like, an easy answer, um, you know, there is no pat speech from Captain Kirk about how this is the right way to do this, that's commendable, and I think it's realistic, and I think it's fair, but the problem with raising political questions in a piece of art and then allowing each side to have these very reasonable portrayals where you're fairly giving them their time is that you create a work that both sides in reality can point to as supporting their cause, like how Metropolis could be read as leftist, centrist, right-wing, whatever you want it to be, because ultimately that didn't matter to Fritz Lang. What mattered to Fritz Lang was like the cool sci-fi shit. You know, so we come away from M going hey, does M support mob justice? Does it support capital punishment, revenge killing? Does it glorify criminals? Is it pro-law and order, or is it pro-mob rule or honor among thieves? Does it have sympathy for the psychopath? Too much sympathy for the psychopath, too little. Mm. M is a compelling film either way, but it sort of, definitely starts to break down if you try to say it's explicitly for or against anything. Mm-hmm. The reason why I start to get bothered by this and can't let M off the hook for this even though I like movies that, you know, aren't didactic is things get especially very disturbing if you look at the fact that M was banned by the Nazis by Joseph Goebbels and you consider that to be political like politically motivated rather than just being like a personal spite thing, Which personal like, pettiness. Right. And I think your life is going to be easier if you realize that it was banned out of personal pettiness and spite, because if you think it was banned for political reasons, you're going to start looking at the movie for the political content. You're going to start looking for, you know, who are the Nazis and who are the Jews in M? Is it the police, the criminals, the killer, the common people, Like, if you read M as a parable for mob persecution, as like a a story against mob justice, as a story saying like, hey, the way we're all kind of telling on Jews around each other and going after them is a little bit disturbing, you know? That gets really problematic when you realize that you've cast the child killer as the persecuted group in your analogy. Because that suggests then that the mob has a valid reason for persecution like
1: at the end of the day you can't at the end of the day they chose a crime that they thought was the worst crime to commit right it's
0: kind of like the way that the mutant allegory in x-men breaks down if you think about it too hard because (laughs) like people don't like mutants because like oh they're dangerous and they should be locked up and registered And, like, that's horrific if you think about it as an allegory for real-world social groups. But if you think about how the X-Men are people who can shoot lasers out of their eyes, like, it's kind of reasonable. Yeah. And so if you use a child murderer as an allegory for a persecuted group, like, that gets really, really problematic really quick. But no matter how you fill the musical chairs it's always bad. Like if the Nazis are the mob or if the Nazis, the child murderer, or if the Jews are the police, or if the Nazis are the police, no matter what role you try to fit people in allegorically in M, you're going to end up with like a very bad take basically. And so that's why I really think it's better to regard M as a dramatic story, compellingly told, ripped from the headlines, highly influential upon, you know, the birth of an entire genre as well as a film that was probably both like provocative and cathartic when it came out because, you know, it came out in the months after Curtin was captured, but before he was sentenced, like people were having these debates about the capital punishment of Curtin when this movie came out. Right. Yeah. And Beckert's fate is left uncertain. Because, because we
1: don't know for, uh, we don't know what Curtin's fate is. Exactly. All we know is that he's in the courts.
0: Exactly. And so when you see the movie from that angle, the pieces all fall into place. When you kind of see this as like a bit of a wish fulfillment movie, but if you try to start thinking of it politically, it really breaks down really quickly. And that's partially because of that gray morality that doesn't take a side.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Lang being a political especially as Nazis are coming to power, is definitely something that uh, could be expanded upon in a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, I think
0: I think that's come over really clear in this episode, <laughs> where, like, in order to tell the story of this movie, I had to tell the story of, like, a lot of things that seemed maybe not related at first, but tied in eventually.
1: Totally. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I gotta say that, like... While I understand that the humanistic, uh, well, you you use that word to describe Metropolis, but um, the community-centered focus of M being like, well, we got to take care of each other. Well, I can understand that that seems really reductive to the average moviegoer. I have an unintentional catchphrase on another show I do called The Rambler's Almanac that is like a radio show where we talk about political issues usually from a labor perspective where you know solidarity is a big thing cgsw
0: 90.9 fm
1: i wasn't going to pitch it totally like that but you know whatever now it's said and that catchphrase is we live in a society right and while it was initially said tongue-in-cheek and it has also been tied to like the joker being we live in a society right The reason that I end up saying it frequently on the Rambler's Almanac is because what I mean by that phrase is that we should take care of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, That yes, compassion is incredibly important that I don't care if I pay high taxes because it means that someone might be off the street and someone will get like their appendix taken care of like that in general, people will be taken care of. And, And the common community, communal good of society is what I'm trying to underline when I say that phrase. And I feel like that is what I latch onto with M. And I think also why I was like bothered by Goebbels' interpretation of this movie of being like, yeah, uh, like Nazi mob justice. Because you said that he liked this movie. Yeah,
0: he, he thought this was a perfect movie despite the fact that they banned it later and his reason was he felt there was no humanitarian Mm. like bleeding heart stuff in this movie that like in in goebel's mind we're not being asked to sympathize with beckert and i think Goebbels saw because the thing about the nazis especially if you think about before they came to power, like this movie came out in 31, right? The Nazis didn't come to power till 33 Yeah, is that their rhetoric was all based around the folk. Yeah. Right. It was all based around the people. Like the Nazis were the party of the common man. And so, you know, the thing where like the criminals have arranged this mob justice and we have like common people, you know, they're shouting out, like, think of the mothers, which was another, like, motherhood was a very important thing to the Nazis. Like, I can see why that all appealed to him. You know, the fact that the actor playing Safecracker portrays him in a certain way and then also went on to be a Nazi for real, like, makes it hard not to see the mob justice stuff as being Nazi-like. The trap to fall into is to think that makes Beckert like the the Jew in the story. But people have to remember that like there was a lot more to the Nazis than just the anti-Semitism and that like they really considered themselves to be like, you know, the way that a lot of right wing rhetoric talks about, you know, being the party that was going to be tough on crime, right? And save everyone and keep everybody safe. And, you know, the Nazis also didn't regard the Weimar government as legitimate, Mm-hmm. Um they thought it was sort of like a criminal government. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, Nazis and right-wing people tend to be very like law and order focused and pro police and stuff, the police in this movie could be seen as not being who you're supposed to empathize with from a Nazi point of view because they're Weimar government officials and therefore illegitimate. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like we haven't like talked enough about like the moviness of this movie, but like the moviness, like the craft stuff, cuz that's the other thing is like well, we've
1: talked about the editing, the w- the way it does world building with its sound and its editing.
0: And then there's the cinematography yes. and the way that that's, you know, our bridge from expressionism to film noir.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about how this movie came out like 10-ish years after Caligari.
0: And 10-ish years before the Maltese Falcon.
1: Yeah, German expressionism isn't really in m the shadows are in M. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was to be more German it we would be leaning more towards a Caligari kind of cinematography, I guess, in mise-en-scene.
0: That said, the cinematography, or rather the, the mise-en-scene, the blocking of M, does frequently use the environment in a way that is descended from the way expressionism uses the environment.
1: Yeah, it's not as... Um... <laughs> artificial right it's not as literal
0: (laughs) the shot that i think of is the shot where he's like looking in at a display of knives and we have a shot that's like looking out from within the store display and we're seeing just like this square of knives um
1: around a mirror
0: yeah like it's a reflection of them in the window that he's looking through so that it looks like he's being framed Mm -hmm. by this square of knives right stuff like that where the environment is still being used to suggest like character absolutely lang made a conscious choice not to show violence in m like we don't see the murders no and we don't really see any violence done to anybody else in the movie either like that watchman gets beat up but like we don't really see it it's not really well
1: they purposefully close the door people crowd around the window and then we hear a scream yes
0: we hear things in M a lot that we don't see
1: yeah I think with the murder of Elsie it's also really telling the absence of violence but yet the power of that absence mm-hmm. because we do just see that ball roll we see the balloon float away that we know that he bought for her and it's chilling because it's like what did he do
0: yeah lang believed that the audience's imaginations would conjure horrors far worse than anything he could show which is correct yes but yeah it's something that like does make M different from a lot of the serial killer content that it has spawned where even like the classiest of it like your your hannibal lecter <laughs> type things um do tend to really dwell on in the violence and the blood and the viscera and the shock. Yes. Um, which isn't really a part of M. It's, it's one of the reasons among a few that M is not a horror movie because we're
1: not really being asked to like dwell in the horror of what Beckard is doing. We're being asked to focus on the effect on the community, but also what communities are doing about the violence.
0: Right. And there's this kind of like, you know, procedural, watch the job get done kind of element to things.
1: I mentioned at the very beginning of the second half that there are things that I don't like about M. Right. So this is one thing that I can't really hold against it. I don't like how shrill some of the audio is. Mm. Part of that is um, the amount of whistling in the movie. And it's an old movie. So like that audio is just going to be shrill and it hurts my ears and I don't like it.
0: It's using sound very innovatively, but there are still like limits to what it's sound mixing can do technologically on like a mono track.
1: Yeah. I don't like the moments where there's absolute silence. So um, I think kind of the key there's, there's two moments that come to mind first is After we get told that, yeah, the police are cracking down and doing raids, we cut to seeing the police cracking down and doing raids, but it's in absolute silence. And I don't like it because it feels like I'm missing part of the story.
0: Right. Like we're seeing like riot squads, you know, in the back of paddy wagons, like driving around and like tons of dudes coming out of them and, and into buildings and stuff. And there should be sound. And we know because we've seen other shots of like streets that had like car noises and honking and stuff that it's not like the movie doesn't know how to put environmental sounds in.
1: yeah. You mentioned in the beginning that Lang used those moments of silence to try to build tension. I feel like it does not work in this case, in that particular instance. There's another moment when they use absolute silence, and it's when they're chasing Beckert into the office building. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I'm not a huge fan of it there, but I think it works better at building the tension because we understand, like, they are chasing him, and it's a tense moment police arriving to crack down on petty crime. I'm not tense about that.
0: The thing that's really hard to think about is what an audience at the time would have thought because from a modern perspective, the silence, like the sound just dropping out completely like that, feels like a mistake, right? Like you reach for the remote to see that you didn't hit like mute accidentally or something. But I wonder, you know, what would have sounded more normal to them? the silence or the sound effects. Like, would a person in 31 think of the movie's scenes that do have honking cars and things as being these, like, moments of, like, jolting sound and chaos. Um, in and amongst the movie and would see the silent moments as being like, oh, this is what a movie's like.
1: Well, to be fair, silent movies were never really fully silent because they have the soundtrack.
0: Yeah, you have, well... They had musical accompaniment.
1: Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. In these moments in M, there's not even any music.
0: Right. Because everybody forgot to have musical accompaniment when sound started. Like, there's no score to this film. Yeah. Because, you know, the people making the movies never had to worry about that before. That was always the theater's job. Exactly. But, yeah, I do kind of wonder, you know, we regard the sound as normal and the silences as pauses in the soundtrack. And I wonder if... An audience at the time would see the silences as normal and the sound as
1: moments of emphasis. It's a good movie, but it's too long. Really? There there are things that I think could have been streamlined while still having the same effect. Um, and I always found myself at around like an hour 30 that it's like, okay, so Beckert's caught by the criminals, but now we still have to go through Franz being, like, questioned and then giving up where they've taken Beckert. And it just it feels like the pacing goes weird in that last 30, 40 minutes, um, particularly, like, when they go into the philosophical thing. So I I think it's definitely a movie I would still recommend. I think that there could be ways to... I, I wouldn't want to cut down the philosophical areas, but make it not feel so, like suddenly we've stopped the momentum. Hmm. I don't know. It, it just feels like a bit too long. You know, we've talked about how capital punishment is a big question that Lang poses but does not answer. And when we see the criminal court, I do appreciate the anger that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone whose family has dealt with their fair share of injustice and not being able to have that resolved in a way even through the courts like it wow that makes it sound like really mysterious um it's fine everything's fine um but i understand like how you you would want to feel like a to take revenge and b in your own hands i can understand that but what i i think lang wants to do for the audience is to have you sit there with how you felt with this crime court, being ready to murder this guy and being either like mad that the cops have interrupted that and bringing justice, question mark, or being relieved when the cops show up and that mob justice isn't going to be done. I think he wants you to sit with whatever reaction you had And I think he also wants you to sit with regardless of all of that doesn't even matter Mm -hmm. because of the grief of the mothers. Yeah.
0: The, the real point here is that like nothing's going to bring the kids back. Yeah. Um, I think as I've been saying, the way that this movie asks you to ask tough questions of yourself and to consider these tough questions is commendable. It's unfortunate that it was doing that at a time when the world was becoming a very extreme place mm-hmm. and having a kind of socratic like well i'm just asking questions here sort of attitude meant that you weren't picking a side in like a very real struggle right um the fact that you can come away from this movie going like this is a movie about you know, community and, and all these good things. And Goebbels can come away from this movie being like, ah, ha ha. excellent, Right. <laughs> and that you can have this disagreement over this movie shows the power and the downside of this movie. Mm-hmm. The thing about the capital punishment arguments is that they are entirely fair And are basically the same debates that people are still having about capital punishment to this day. Absolutely. Um, Because all the things being said are true. Like the stuff about how you can't punish a man who's not responsible for his actions is true. But the thing about, right, but if you just leave him to his ends, we're going to keep having murders is like true. And I talked about this a little bit in the intro matter. Um, about there being like different philosophies of the purpose of the law and the purpose of justice and the purpose of the legal system. Um, I took some legal studies classes in university. That's why I have this rolling around in my brain. (laughs) But like philosophically, um, when you take legal studies, um, there's a difference between the law and justice. um, And those two things have specific definitions in sort of legal thought. And there are different... Directions you can come at justice from and what is the purpose of justice. And you can see this a little bit in the different ways that we punish criminals. Like there's the, we're going to throw you in jail so that you can't harm society again idea. Then there's the, we're going to throw you in jail because you're a shitty person and we want you to feel bad idea. Then there's the like, we're going to rehabilitate you so that you can become a better person kind of idea. And then there's a, a sort of victims forward version of things where it's like, you need to work off your debt to your victims. You need to, you know, pay them money or you need to like, I don't know, like literally go work for them or you need to do something to compensate your victims. Um, The other question that gets brought up a lot is like, who is the law for? Mm -hmm. Who does the law serve? Who does the justice system serve? Whose needs are you thinking about? The victims, the,
1: The families?
0: The families, the perpetrator, the state, or are you thinking of like the community? And the thing I want to bring up about the community, because that's what M is about, is theoretically, the Western system of legal practice, or rather the North American, I will say, is very based around the community. Um, You have like civil suits where it's this guy versus this guy. But when you are dealing with a murderer, when you're dealing with crimes of that sort of nature, there's a reason why the legal docket doesn't say the state versus this person. It says the people versus this person. Because the idea is that the sentencing of this criminal services the community and that there's a communal need for catharsis and justice that is served by the legal process now there's also the difference between a lot of high-fluting philosophy and the problematic and flawed ways that these systems are enacted by humans and the way they can be abused and that's, that's also a whole, a whole other, podcast. other podcast um but m asks us to think about all of those things and that's really mm-hmm. cool even if it has this downside that it can be interpreted
1: kind of either way mm-hmm. well folks i hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode on a horror adjacent film uh we do these once a month thanks to the uh, support of our patrons over at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast If you would like to join the ranks of patrons of the night, you can head over there and support us financially, and you'll also get access to some amazing bonus audio and other fun materials.
0: The next regular episode of the show, uh, going up as always on Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, will be on William Castle's Macabre from 1958. As to our next horror-adjacent episode, keep an eye on patreon.com slash podcast to see the next poll for the next horror-adjacent film. If you want to be a part of that poll and deciding, sign up to be a patron.
1: Thanks again for listening, and uh, stay safe out there.
0: (laughs) And keep an eye on the children.
1: All All of you. you. Bye! Bye!